0: Wendy Meese, your host for the Left Pocket Project podcast. In this, the third episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Lauren Lefty. Lauren is a doctoral candidate at New York University in the history of education. Before beginning doctoral studies in history, Lauren worked as a middle and high school teacher in Texas and New York, and as a policy planner with the New York City Department of Education. Lauren's dissertation, entitled "Seize the Schools: Que Viva Puerto Rico Libre," Cold War education politics in New York and San Juan, has received support from the National Academy of Education and the Spencer Foundation Fellowship. Lauren and I discuss her research on Puerto Rico and labor and education movements both on the island and among diasporic Puerto Rican communities on the mainland. We also chat about Puerto Rico in the present and how movements throughout the island have worked not only to fight austerity and the continued economic onslaught from D.C., but how people across the island have been fighting to restore some semblance of the lives they once lived. Today I'm speaking with Lauren Lefty, who is a PhD candidate at NYU, um, and it's great because Lauren Lefty and I are sort of in a competition of who has the best last name. Um, while mine is useful for other purposes, I think for the sake of discussing um, leftists of color um, and leftism in general, Lauren Lefty is rather fitting, I think. What do you well, think,
1: Well, I, d- I do try and live up to my namesake, yes. <laughs> this is very good, in, good my, in my academics and my politics, but awesome. yes, I always get lots of comments that It's a very memorable and fitting last name.
0: <laughs> of course, of course. And it's, it's fitting that, again, your your politics and your academic work at least combines and goes with your last name. I would hate to see if you were a right-wing reactionary with a last name like that. It would be... Oh,
1: it would be terrible. Rather
0: <laughs> rather unfortunate. <laughs> um, so I wanted to have you on to talk a bit about your work because um, from the best of my recollection, as we, were, we are technically in the same cohort at NYU, um, you've done a lot of work with regard to Puerto Rican student movements in New York. Um, and... Considering the very recent sort of recovery of a lot of left wing movements led by people of color, such as the Black Panthers and, um, you know, many Latino groups of the same sort. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about this history, your research and sort of what it means to us today to look back on some of these movements and how they can inform our current day politics.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much for having me on. I'm so excited to talk about this. Um, And so, with my research, um, it's a transnational history of education politics in New York and Puerto Rico during the Cold War. So, I'm looking at roughly the era between 1948 and 1975. And I'm really trying to do a couple of things with this research. Um, And one is to really think about how education policy and activism developed within a border crossing manner in the context of not just domestic or local politics, but really global political dynamics. Um, And so, for example, I think about how Cold War era foreign aid and development and modernization theory um, in turn came to influence great society war and poverty educational policies um, directed towards communities of color in the United States. Um, So that's sort of at the policymaking level. But I'm also, as you mentioned, really thinking about how grassroots activism was likewise influenced by these border-crossing phenomena, and particularly the anti-imperial global decolonization politics of that era. Um, and Puerto Rico becomes really important in this story, um, both because it was, you know, this quote-unquote laboratory of democracy and capitalist development during the <laughs> War. And, you know, it's, its development program just has the perfect name, which is Operation Bootstrap, which I think just really, you know, captures this, you know, capitalist meritocratic ethos so well. But then, you know, they came to be this foil to to Cuba and the Caribbean as a. As an economic development model, and they exported a lot of policies to broader Latin America and the global south. Um, And then, you know, again, those policies were used towards Puerto Rican and other communities of color um, in the U.S. And Puerto Ricans, you know, were, you know, you have to consider, you know, the ways in which they... um, promoted and embraced some of these you know, capitalist imperial policies, but also really fought back. I mean, Puerto Ricans were at the vanguard of a lot of anti-imperial politics and organizing um, kind of across the hemisphere, but also in New York City. And this directly translated to education politics, um, and particularly things around, you know, the ESEA and the Great Society, the movement of community control of schools and bilingual and bicultural education. Um, so what I really want people to do, as you mentioned in your question, is think about the ways in which, you know, education, we think of it as something so local, even at the neighborhood level, but the ways in which it engages these, you know, global political dynamics. Um, and in our current moment, that that definitely has to do with, you know, global ideologies of neoliberalism and anti, anti-neoliberalism and austerity.
0: hmm so speaking of neoliberalism, um, I want to hear a little bit more about this Operation Bootstrap. <laughs> yes. um, can you describe that a little bit more and how that involves Puerto Rico? And in particular, as you mentioned, um, Puerto Rico was sort of set up to be by the U.S. a foil to Cuba. So if you could talk a bit about the intersections between Operation Bootstrap and some of the other operations that were going on by the U.S. in Latin America and where mm-hmm. Puerto Rico fits in with this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Operation Bootstrap really grew out of, um, during the 1930s, a lot of new dealers came to Puerto Rico in the 1940s um, as sort of, you know, in the post-war period in the mainland in the 40s. Um, the mainland became this place of prosperity, the economics of prosperity, and a lot of New Deal social programs weren't embraced and accepted anymore. Um, and so a lot of New Dealers went to Puerto Rico, self-describing it as this laboratory where they could experiment with um, sort of state-led planning and development and liberalism. And what that turned into by the 1950s, in this era of, you know, McCarthyist repression and extreme anti-communism, was even sort of this ramped-up pro-capitalist um, development scheme, which definitely embraced some New Deal. You know, programs, top-down planning, industrialization, some light agricultural reform, mm-hmm. but also really incentivizing um, capital from the mainland to invest in Puerto Rico. And so they offered tax incentives to spur capitalist development, industrialization, uh, urbanization. And this, you know, in terms of education, this really involved the the massive investment in the education system uh, for the purposes of capitalist development. So preparing, you know, the engineers and the good good workers that would work in the factories that that developed. And so this Operation Bootstrap became exactly this this model that um, Puerto Rican, you know, the colonial elite wanted to export it and become important actors in the Cold War. Um, but the State Department, you know, loved this and promoted it as well. So eventually Operation Bootstrap became sort of embedded into the DNA of the Alliance for Progress, which, if you don't know, is the major U.S.-sponsored development aid program in Latin America starting in the early 1960s mm-hmm. uh, under JFK. And so, yeah, Bootstrap's DNA really became embedded in that you have thousands of people from Latin America and the Global South visiting Puerto Rico in the, in the 50s and the 60s, kind of on these like development aid field trips, which is really interesting. Yeah. And then the idea was to, you know, oh, take these ideas and, you know, this is liberalism's answer to communism. This is how we do development right. And so, yeah, fascinating in that way.
0: What were some of? Was there a specific set of countries that went to Puerto Rico to sort of learn from these programs, or was there? Was it just sort of like everyone from all parts of Latin America that that went to to Puerto Rico it's, to sort of see it in action?
1: Mm-hmm. It's kind of amazing the the breadth of countries that went there. You'll see people from India, from you know Vietnam, the Philippines, kind of all over the world. I found in the archives this great picture of the Secretary of State of Puerto Rico uh, with lines on a map connecting all the countries that went there. It really is global. But at the same time, you know, they really were arguing that, well, we are capitalist development within a, you know, quote unquote, Hispanic tradition. Um, And so they you know, and we speak Spanish. And so they were trying to court Latin American planners, leaders, development economists, engineers, etc. And so after a while, and especially in the 60s, the majority are coming from Latin American countries and all over, Um, you know, Central America, the Southern Cone, Brazil, Colombia, Peru, pretty much everywhere.
0: And what does it mean, or at least what what did it mean for the Puerto Rican elite to engage in a sort of Hispa- specifically Hispanic, essentialist um, yeah. idea of capitalism and development. For them, what does that mean exactly?
1: And this becomes a really interesting part of the story because they were, you know, on one hand, really embracing the, the capitalist mantra and development mantras of modernization theorists. And at the same time, they were sort of trying to negotiate this this imperial discourse and push for, you know... Puerto Rican cultural nationalism. I mean, they kind of thought of themselves in this way almost as anti imperialists, which becomes really interesting. Um, But they were saying, you know, a lot of the modernization theory coming out in the 50s and 60s. was arguing that modernization couldn't happen in countries that had these traditional attitudes and mindsets. And there's a lot of really offensive derogatory language coming out of these you know, academic treatises about Hispanic culture. And so obviously the Puerto Rican elite were really pushing back against us and saying, no, we have this you know, amazing, vibrant culture modernization can happen within Puerto Rican culture, and it was a very sort of essentialist Hispanic uh, definition of that culture, elitist, and, you know, while they did have discourses of, we seamlessly blend European, African, and indigenous, you know, histories, you know, it definitely uh, kind of, you know, put on a pedestal more white European Hispanic cultural definitions of that.
0: Right. Was there any sort of involvement as well, um, or I guess I'm sure there was involvement, but I'm wondering um, with regard to the kickbacks that you mentioned and sort of the, mm-hmm. the um, incentives for investment, were a lot of those going to U.S. investors or was it mainly situated in Puerto Rico itself?
1: That's a good question. So they were really trying to attract mainland businesses and investors. Um but the Puerto Rican elite were still benefiting from this. So this is sort of that question of, you know, like what why were they doing this? What right. wasn't it for them? Um you know, and, and a lot of the the government that was in power, the political party, um, did have really close ties with a lot of mainland businesses um Puerto Rican businesses were benefiting though the vast majority were were mainland businesses and mm-hmm. of course the problem with that is you know after a while the tax tax incentives ran out those companies left leaving the island in you know the, without a lot of jobs
0: um, and around what time was this when they start pulling out of the island This was
1: in the 1970s so as i say in my research the bootstrap kind of begins to break uh, <laughs> you know like mid 60s late late 60s, early 70s, um, and that's when you have increasing calls for independence and you hear much more critical language against Bootstrap both on the island and the mainland, Um, you know, critiques were really strong in the diaspora as well. Um, But the factories really start pulling out in the 70s. And then you see a similar cycle more recently where they tried to, you know, do very similar things, giving tax incentives to these companies, but then they expire, the companies leave, and then a lot of Puerto Ricans are left without jobs.
0: Right. So this is a great segue, actually, to think about um, what's going on on the island and in New York and the United States, um, especially mm-hmm. on the Puerto Rican left. So I know around the 60s and 70s, you start to see the emergence of a lot of independence movements, some of which are actually armed um, mm-hmm. and Marxist aligned. So if you could talk a little bit about the local responses on the Puerto Rican level um, to these sort of neoliberal or the beginnings of what we would now call neoliberal measures on the island? Um, and also, how what were sort of the reverberations of these movements on the island in New York?
1: Mm-hmm. That's that's a great question. So, exactly. In the late 60s and the 70s, um, one activist said, you know, quote, nationalism really hit the Puerto Rican community like a club on the head. And you're just seeing all of these organizations and movements springing up that, have an explicitly Marxist and or socialist um, political persuasion and that are also, you know, fighting for the independence of Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as you mentioned, this becomes anything from, you know, student university groups um, to armed movements on the island. And they became really kind of powerful and influential movements. um, And they influenced what was happening on the mainland as well. Um, And so mainland Puerto Ricans in the diaspora, um were also being influenced by rising currents of black nationalism, so it was kind of this amazing perfect storm of you know black nationalism meeting with island based puerto rican anti or pro independence um anti imperialist movements within the context of this global anti imperial um kind of wave spreading the global south and so you know there was a lot of movement between mainland activists to the island and vice versa it was relatively cheap to fly back and forth, you know, by the 60s and the 70s. Um, The Young Lords, which are kind of the most famous probably Puerto Rican nationalist organization in New York, you know, they end up opening offices and having a a San Juan branch of their organization. Um, But at the same time, this also leads to some tension. Um, you know, sometimes island and mainland, you know, goals came into conflict with each other. They didn't always agree. The diaspora, especially if you were born in New York, as opposed to the island, there were some, there were some tensions about, you know, who should really be um, in charge and directing and leading the independence movement. Um, but at the same time, it really influenced everything from education politics, definitely, but um, labor movements, housing, fair housing movements, health care. Um, just a, a kind of the broad array of social movements going on in that era.
0: Right. So that was a lot in one um, one big go here. I want to yes. kind of take apart. <laughs> no, but I, I mean I appreciate that. I want to take apart though some of the some of your response and think about them um, as more microcosmic examinations. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So the first of these that I I wanted to hear a little bit more about is you said that there were tensions between um, activists on the mainland in the United States and activists in Puerto Rico. Could you talk a little bit about what, um, I mean, you mentioned there was a question a bit about the leadership who should lead if there were to be an independent Puerto Rico or who should lead these movements. Could you Mm -hmm. talk, talk a bit more about the tensions, how they arose and what was, if anything, sort of the main crux of the conflict?
1: Yeah. And it's interesting. So, um, in the diaspora, I think nationalism could take on many meanings, and for island-based pro-independence groups, it really meant the political independence of the island of Puerto Rico. It would become its own independent nation. And a lot of diasporic groups were also arguing for that, and others were arguing more for cultural nationalism um, within the context that they grew up in. Many young lords, for example, were born in New York or Chicago or Philadelphia. Um, They didn't really see themselves and their families moving back to the island, though there was reverse migration at the time. So, what they were arguing more was let's have self determination within our communities, within U.S. cities, you know, within that political system. Um, And that, you know, led to some tension between the groups. And there were also some interesting tensions about racial justice, actually. Um, So, a lot of mainland Puerto Ricans. Um absolutely included racial equality, justice, black nationalism into their arguments um and on the island, sometimes those were seen as imports from you know from the mainland, um, not necessarily you know the more class based um you know movements that yeah exactly that had been going on for a while on the island,
0: right. Um, but it's interesting because you see, in with groups like the Young Lords and the Black Panthers, there's quite a bit of a class analysis and, and aspect of their work, right? Um, Absolutely. So, where mm-hmm. I, I guess the is it a matter of of the Young Lords focusing more on the racial aspect that, or at least in 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 their sort of public. Um, appearance right the way things sort of looked mm-hmm. on the outside it seemed to be as you said a more of a cultural na- nationalism movement but mm-hmm. at, the, at the center of their work there's a lot of class-based um, work as well right so uh,
1: absolutely mm-hmm. so how did you- that
0: sort of I mean I, yeah I'm curious about like was it on was it just that the, the racial aspects was or the cultural aspects were alienating for some on the island or was it a little bit even deeper than that
1: Well, I I think you really hit the nail on the head. Like, if you look at the Young Lords political ideology, class and an explicitly socialist and Marxist influenced um, ideology is at the heart of what they're arguing for. They do not kind of separate race from class. And so I think sometimes it was just a misinterpretation. Um, Sometimes it was just kind of personalities mm-hmm. <laughs> and something, you know, we think of, you know, when we study left-wing movements, sometimes it's just about, you know, the Young Lords were young mainly, and they sometimes came to the island with, you know, kind of arrogant attitudes about they should be in charge and just would rub island activists the same, you know, the wrong way. Right, um, And then sometimes it would be about, you know, more granular disputes within leftist politics. Um, you know, the Young Lords, Some branches became more Maoist, you know, in the 70s, and Mm -hmm. some island-based groups didn't. And so it became about ideology as well as personality, I think.
0: And this office that you mentioned that the Young Lords opened up in Puerto Rico, was it run by someone from Puerto Rico? Was it run by a mainland-based Young Lord activist who went back and forth, or both?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So I know that New York-based Young Lords did go there and I'm not quite sure who ended up being, you know, the head of that organization if there was a head at all. I know they did try and work with, um, you know, on the ground activists and someone. Um, but I also know that young Lords in retrospect, when they wrote their memoirs, they're saying, Oh, this was actually kind of a mistake of our organization. We should have maybe tried to just align with existing groups that were already there, which they were doing as well, um, to be fair. Um, but, but yeah, I think they didn't quite, you know, cultivate, um, Exactly. A more local leadership <laughs> um branch of that organization, though though I'm not quite an expert of yeah, who, who was totally in charge there.
0: So on that note a bit, because you said that there were ongoing movements, right? There were multiple movements from multiple sectors of Puerto Rican mm-hmm. society that were happening at the same time as the groups like the Young Lords were coming into um, into activism, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about more, of, a little bit more about those as well, especially the labor movements. I'm really fascinated by this, particularly as Operation Bootstraps and, and most likely other initiatives that the United States mainland had launched um, mm-hmm. would involve obviously an expansion of the workforce. So what was going on in the labor movement, um, in, especially in the 60s and 70s in Puerto Rico?
1: Yeah, the labor movement was really important in this whole story. So there was a very strong uh, labor movement in the 1930s, particularly with uh, kind of the start of the rise of industrialization. Uh, Tobacco's workers' unions were very strong, as as well as a few others. Um, And in the diaspora as well, in New York, uh, the radical labor movement amongst the Puerto Rican community uh, was extremely strong at this point. But during this era, you also start to see state repression towards these movements, and it was uh, aligned to the growing nationalist movement as well. And so the FBI, uh, the Puerto Rican state starts cracking down on labor radicalism uh, for its you know, for its own purposes, because their government was anti-communist, but also because it's thought to be linked to uh, Albizu Campos's growing nationalist movement. Pedro Albizu Campos was the, was the leading nationalist voice at the time. Um, and even in the 30s, you know, the island and mainland discourses about, about labor, anti-capitalist organizing was really linked as well. Mm-hmm. And so my, my expertise is a little bit more with uh, the teachers union, which has always been a really active voice on the island. Um, And so once you get into the bootstrap phase, you you see the teachers union having a really important voice. Uh, But for the most part, they they did embrace uh, bootstrap policies. But again, this was in the context of repression and specifically something called the gag law which was passed um, and prohibited, made illegal any speaking out against uh, the Commonwealth, anything pro-independence was banned. And again, because the intersection of independence movements and radical leftist politics critiquing capitalism were so intertwined, it really limited radical dissent on the island as well.
0: So speaking of teachers, um, and especially education, since that's the main focus of your work, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Yep. Can you talk a bit more about how all of these sort of competing economic, social, international interests, um, how that affected education in Puerto Rico, first of all? Um, and again, where that like sort of how did that connect back to the movements that we're seeing in New York? You had mentioned earlier that there was quite a bit um with regard to anti-imperialism and the mm-hmm. war on poverty and the like, um, but you you're seeing this as more of a border crossing or transnational movement. So can you talk a bit about how education uh, movements on both the island and the mainland, how are they interacting? What's going on uh, with these two groups?
1: So during the Cold War, education becomes a really important battleground to engage in Cold War era debates, uh, not just about civil rights and equal opportunity in a domestic sense, but also about these big global questions of modernity and sovereignty, uh, specifically what is the proper path to modern economic development? Is it US style capitalism or Soviet style communism or some sort of third way socialism? Uh, and what does it mean to be sovereign in this superpower dominated Cold War context in an age of decolonization? Mm-hmm. So educational spaces, like for example, debates about curriculum or administration, financing, uh, education's linked to economic development, Um, These really become sites for everyday citizens to engage these issues and not just policymakers or diplomats and and really shape those debates. And this happens on the island as well as the mainland. Um, So on the island, what you see is really a massive government effort to expand the education system uh, for the explicit purpose of capitalist modernization. And this is influenced by modernization theory and the idea of human capital theory coming from the Cold War University of the 1950s and 60s. Um, And this idea of what you need in order to take off his a trained workforce um, and managers for the island's new factories. And so this results in just the massive uh, rapid expansion of the public school system, mm-hmm. the, pro- yeah, the proliferation of literacy and adult education programs, uh, the creation of a community education project, uh, which really aimed to teach people to kind of be modern in this weird way. And education becomes what planners called the cornerstone of development in this era. Mm. And so you you also see Commonwealth government using schools to promote cultural nationalism, um, as we were discussing, and their their version of it, um, which leads to, for example, uh, Spanish being the official language of the island for the first time in the late 1940s. And new curricular materials made by Puerto Ricans about Puerto Rico um, and yet this also means that educational sites become, yeah, these really important spaces for island residents to engage and negotiate and critique these bootstrap policies, which they absolutely did. Right. And yeah, and the same goes for the diaspora on the mainland. And, you know, your question was, how are these connected? And so, you know, education becomes a key focus of activism for the post-war Puerto Rican Great Migration as well. Um, and again, you see activists are engaging with this idea of, you know, what is the best path toward modernity? Mm-hmm. And so, some Puerto Ricans answer with uh, capitalism the idea that you can pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. But, but others really critique that premise and argue for ed reform within maybe a broader socialist revolution or, you know, some groups, even a communist revolution.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And you see Puerto Ricans focusing in New York on issues of community control bilingual education, critiquing culture of poverty ideas um, as part of their drive for both modernity and sovereignty. Um, And kind of this this last part of this, this is really interesting. Uh, As I mentioned before, at the policy-making level, you also have people who had worked on programs in Cold War global development, like in Bootstrap or the Alliance for Progress, coming back to craft the domestic war on poverty programs. So you see a lot of links between the two um, with the idea that what worked for former colonies and nations of color abroad might work for communities of color um, in the U.S. and the quote unquote internal colonies. So you see links between international uh, community development and domestic community action for example this idea of maximum feasible participation uh comes out of that you see links between bilingual ed and even programs like the peace corps um or puerto ricos escuelas Maternales, which were preschools uh come to influence the domestic teacher corps and head start in really interesting ways and there's just a bunch of examples of that Mm. so yeah so while education was kind of this you know the right kind of revolution uh and safer capitalism abroad, you know, this was also deeply linked to President Johnson's ideas about education being the only valid passport from poverty, which is his famous quote from the 1960s. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, in this way you do really see a transnational formulation of policy, of activism grappling with these big questions. Um, What is education's link to economic development? What does sovereignty look like um, in schools, but also in society? And, and how is education both a reflection of these debates and a tool to enter and shape them?
0: Who are some of the leaders that are making these critiques um, that are coming from the Puerto Rican community, either on the mainland or in Puerto Rico? Can you talk a bit, a bit, mo- a bit more about those uh, movement leaders or people who are involved in the process?
1: Yes, absolutely. So, Puerto Rican community in New York, and on the islands as well, but in New York has a really rich history of educational activism, um, particularly in the post-war period. So, Antonia Pantoja she becomes an extremely important figure. She starts the group Espira, uh-huh. um, which becomes, you know, sort of like a, a mainstream youth development organization uh, within the quote-unquote bootstrap mold in the 1950s and early 60s. But Also a really important training ground for more radical activists later. And Pantoja herself becomes kind of more radicalized by the the late 60s and early 70s. Um, So she's a really important figure. Um, Evelina Uh Lopez-Antonetti started the United Bronx Parents, which is a really awesome parent-based, parent-run activist group out of the South Bronx. And so they were really influential in advocating for community control of schools in New York, bilingual, bicultural education, um, and a number of really important educational policies. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a lot. So I would say those two are kind of like the most important figures in this era. But then you just see a lot of Parent organizing um, amongst the Puerto Rican community, you see the first Puerto Rican Board of Education president, um, who's sort of a more mainstream figure connected with island-based politics, but you know, he still becomes president as decentralization is going on. Joseph Montserrat, um, and then the Puerto Rican Forum is a really important organization that's involved in these politics uh, as well, so...
0: So um, with regard to the individuals, I was thinking a bit back on your, at least the early stages of your research. And Mm -hmm. you had mentioned quite a bit about high school students and their involvement in this process. Can you talk a bit more about the youth led movements that were and how they were connected uh, with this education movement as a larger scale?
1: Absolutely. So I think often we think about this global 60s activism as happening a lot on university campuses, but it's really important to think about how K through 12 students, particularly high school students were just as involved in these movements and were really influential. So in all of the, you know, big protests and organizing for community control, bilingual bicultural education, Um, High school students were right there and they were organizing, they were writing really influential um, kind of pamphlets and magazines connecting anti-imperial politics abroad to what was happening in their schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of young lords <laughs> were high school students, actually. And a lot of what was happening on university campuses um, was linked to high school students even through the clubs, which operated in in high schools. And so often university students were encouraged to go back to their former high schools. And in that way, um, Aspira, UBP, became really important links between K-12 through and higher ed organizing.
0: Mm-hmm. And were there were some of the students involved here in sort of the, I'm assuming they're in public schools, right? Um, What was happening beyond the public schools with these students? Did they have any sort of... um, sort of side educational projects that they or their parents or some other um, local activists were involved in especially considering that I know you had mentioned that one of the activists was pushing for bilingual education right Mm -hmm. Um, but not only a question it's not so much a question of bilingualism but also a question of biculturalism or multiculturalism Um, where did where did young people and or their parents or fellow activists where were they what were they doing to sort of encourage this beyond the public school system in New York
1: Yeah, and that's a great point. I think we do really need to think about education as operating outside of the K through 12 system. And, you know, it is also important to note that um, this activism was happening in some Catholic schools as well, which I think is an often forgotten about landscape of activist terrain um, in this era. But you know there are really important kind of weekend liberation schools being set up by united bronx parents and the young lords and other activist organizations and within these these reading circles um And in other kind of, like, learning groups, they would promote cultural pride, history in a way that, you know, isn't taught in the schools. So the Young Lords were really active in this, for example, of having sort of Puerto Rican educational uh, classes and saying, you know, the history that we've learned is really the legacy of colonialism. And we need to start, you know, telling our own histories and writing our own histories. So... And here we see um, El Centro, which becomes a community archive for the diaspora, comes directly out of these um, activist movements of this era. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a space to produce research by the Puerto Rican community about themselves, when for so long they had been the subjects. Of, of research studies and everything, um, but not the active voices actually making those, those arguments.
0: So I'm a huge nerd, so I think that's <laughs> really fascinating, right? Oh, I love it, yeah. Um, I'm wondering, though, I know a bit about the surveillance of the Young Lords, but were the people who were involved ex- exclusively with these educational projects, were they also surveyed by the U.S. government, um, and did they face any sort of um, state-based repression or issues, or were they sort of operating under the radar?
1: That's a good question. So I think something like Aspira, for example, um, could sort of operate. It was always con- a little bit more mainstream. They were, you know, actively cooperating with um, city government. You know, they had funding from a lot of the mainstream liberal foundations. Um, yet at the same time, a lot of their members, especially the high school students, could be more radical. And so I think in that way, a lot of People, you know, operating in a spare circles—they uh, weren't, you know, infiltrated by COINTELPRO, uh-huh. uh, the FBI, like the Young Lords were. But there was such overlap between these organizations that a lot of people who are active in educational activism um, definitely faced, you know, <laughs> repression and and surveillance by the FBI during this time.
0: Right. And especially thinking about just the overlap of leftist movements, right, that are, that are exactly. involved in this. It's almost inevitable. Um, mm-hmm. I'm curious a bit about that as well. So you mentioned that some of the leaders of these groups, or at least the groups themselves, were a little bit more centrist or mainstream. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just curious about were there, to the best of your knowledge, were there any like very radical left or Marxist-aligned um, groups that were forming at this time on the mainland? I'm aware of them in a little bit in in Puerto Rico, but on the mainland and in New York in particular, beyond the Young Lords, were there others who were more um, I guess we would say nowadays hard left focus. So you Yeah,
1: focused. I would say El Comite was a really important leftist organization, um, and their main goal was not educational activism, but as you mentioned, all these movements were aligned, mm-hmm. and they were a really important one um, arguing for definitely a more kind of, you know, hard left Marxist interpretation of of you know their social politics.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so, thinking a bit now about the present, especially because, as I mentioned earlier, all of these movements, young lords, Black Panthers, a lot of the indigenous movements in the Americas are coming to the fore once again, um especially as researchers are getting gaining access to these archives um that have finally been opened up by the government yes. right yeah um, and discovering more and more, so I'm curious now about. Where your work fits in the present, particularly as we think about Puerto Rico and a lot of the university movements, austerity, a lot of developments that have happened with regard to the hurricane. If you could talk a bit about Puerto Rico in the present um, Mm -hmm. and where you see more contemporary movements fitting in with um, this larger set of research.
1: Yeah. So with my research, I really want people kind of working with educational movements for justice today to think about some parallels between the era that I'm working in. So just as within you know the global 60s, um, both policymakers and grassroots activists are really being shaped by these global political dynamics. And, you know, instead of maybe the modernization theory of the 1960s, it's really this neoliberal ideology that's being um Kind of encouraged and, and you know spread across borders all over the world um, by kind of these global <laughs> global uh, development quote unquote experts right mm-hmm. and so this definitely happened in Puerto Rico specifically because of the the mounting debt crisis that has been happening um, really for years now and wait, so wait wait
0: hold on you mean the debt crisis didn't start with Trump. <laughs> <laughs> I am glad
1: you asked, because no, it definitely did not. And you know, I think it's really important to note that that these movements, um, which I think people are turning to in Puerto Rico right now in the quote unquote age of Trump, you know, have really been going on for a long time because neoliberalism has been going on for a long time, right? right. Um, you know, starting even in the seventies and eighties, but during, you know, the Clinton, Bush and Obama administrations, this has all been going on. Um, and particularly, you know sadly, during the Obama administration. Um, And the debt crisis in 2010 is when you saw really a really big strike at the University of Puerto Rico in response to austerity measures that were being um, recommended by these hedge funds and sort of former IMF um, economists that, you know, were recommending in order to deal with the debt crisis, you need to start decreasing your education budget, laying off teachers, closing and consolidating schools, and increasing tuition at the university, so this, you know, really kicked off um, some really amazing leftist organizing on the island um, by university students, but also by teachers' unions, by a lot of different unions. Um, and so, for for many years now, we've been having a really interesting, you know, engagement with neoliberal education reform, but neoliberal policies, you know, across the board in Puerto Rico. And so, in the wake of Hurricane Maria, when we're, you know, kind of nervous about this disaster capitalism um, coming in after the hurricane, we do have to recognize it was already, you know, trying to be implemented there pre-hurricane, and now, sadly, maybe the conditions are worse, but, um, you know, there have been movements fighting against this, and so we're seeing... um, Yeah, some really exciting stuff happening in the island right now against neoliberal reforms, um, which is absolutely influencing what's happening on the mainland. Um, And just like they did in the 60s, you know, people cross borders, people talk, um, maybe even heightened now with social media. So what's happening in Puerto Rico is having, you know, hopefully a really exciting effect on anti Corporate education reform organizing in New York, but it was even before Hurricane Maria as well.
0: So I'm hoping that I don't forget what I want to ask you, but I have a back a back question that I do need to ask. <laughs> um, I think one of the things that we we sort of tend to start in the middle of things, right? We mm-hmm. like to we like yep. to start with major controversies, but we don't really know the backstory. Could you mm-hmm. talk a little bit more about how Puerto Rico got into debt? It seems that. Um, from what you mentioned early on in our discussion when you were talking about how a lot of the businesses were pulling out and that was starting to create a type a type of deindustrialization in the 70s is it yes. linked to that is there more to this story or is it something somewhat um, comparable to what we see in places like Detroit or St. Louis or Memphis um, are we seeing something that's more a result of deindustrialization or is it a matter of Uh, Puerto, uh, Puerto Rico still being treated as a colony, or is it a mixture of both? Can you talk a little bit about the background of the debt crisis itself?
1: Yeah, I think it absolutely is a mixture of both. And I don't really think we can have an adequate understanding of the current debt crisis without understanding Puerto Rico's long history of being a colony um, and being sort of a tax haven and then that not working out well. And then island leaders being kind of between a rock and a hard place and looking for solutions and not having many good options. Um, And so, you know, you do see these vulture funds, which we've seen at work, you know, in Argentina and other Greece and other places around the world come in sort of in this, you know, in the past 10, 15 years. But, you know, you can't quite understand that without understanding Puerto Rico's colonial past. Um, And it is important to recognize the mismanagement um, by Puerto Rican politicians you know during this mm-hmm, era mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's also an interesting parallel to the ways that Puerto Rican colonial elites in the post-war period had to negotiate their position and you know may have quote unquote sold out you know to the, <laughs> to the imperialists pretty much mm-hmm, um, yeah. but the way in which colonial politics for a long time have shaped the available options on the island and um, yeah you, you absolutely have to take that into consideration
0: right so thank you for that. That's impo- that's really important because I think, again, we don't have, in the U.S., at least in the mainland, in the news, we just kind of start in the middle of things. We don't have a full backstory. And then we have five seconds to try to figure that backstory out before we've moved on to something else. Right. Um, so it's super important to get, to get that story. Um, what I was going to ask though, more, um, with regard to your specific response before explaining the crisis is, um, you mentioned that there were movements going on in the early or around the 2010, 2011 up to the hurricane. Um, Mm -hmm. and I'm wondering now, uh, seemingly with a lot of these activists and their families displaced, are are these movements going to continue, you think, in the mainland? And what will that look like um, for Puerto Rico going forward?
1: That's a really interesting question. And I think on one hand, there is kind of this hope on behalf of mainland social movements, um, That, you know, oh, a lot of Puerto Ricans coming to the mainland have exciting, you know, experience working against these neoliberal reforms, um, have really good organizing experience. They might reinvigorate our social and labor movements. Mm -hmm. Um, And on one hand, that is really exciting. And I, I think that can definitely happen. And on the other, I think we do have to you know, realize the real human toll that that's taking right, on place course. and that, you know, I think it will have a negative impact on what's happening on the island. I mean, just so many people are having to leave. Um, people are having to deal with just kind of, you know, basic get food and water and shelter and stuff like that. And, right. um, you know, and so he'll it, be curious what happens on the island. But it, I, I do hope that, you know, the movements that they have for a long time stay really connected but that in sort of our excitement of like, oh, hey, Puerto Ricans moved to swing states and, oh, and yeah. West. <laughs> you know, we, <laughs> don't, we don't get too excited about that without thinking about, you know, what's happening to the island, because that is still very important as well. And if these families, you know, do they want to come here just, to, you know, for those reasons, but maybe they want to stay at home and have, right. you know, continued progressive politics there as well. Mm-hmm. So
0: I think that's a really important point. And I recall a tweet uh, to an effect of of basically saying that, yay, we're going to get more Democratic voters, Mm -hmm. um, which is a little bit um, insensitive, (laughs) to say the least. (laughs) Um, But I do think it is important to think about perhaps. not so, not even just the movements that were happening before the hurricane but also the movements that are still ongoing while the, after the hurricane right um and Absolutely. the way that a lot of people have really come together and used this as a as a point of galvanizing um you know and really forcing a lot of Puerto Ricans to rethink their relationship with the United States Um, Mm -hmm. whether or not a lot of these programs of austerity were really the right way to go. Um, Because I I don't expect so much from U.S. Americans in the mainland, at least in the government, um, Mm -hmm. especially right now, um, to Mm -hmm. really start start asking those questions. But I do think that there's a lot of potential on the island um, in terms of these movements that could spring up as well in the present, right? Absolutely. Um, and, And I'm curious about your... You know, you mentioned that your your research again is is really questioning these the role of um, anti imperial movements and sort of global sort of global outlooks on on um, independence of sorts, if not literal independence, but at least some sense of um, you know um, political independence to some degree. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about um, where you now see Puerto Rico's place politically, right, going forward. Does is there some I mean, is there hope? I guess is the question, right? Does does Puerto Rico have any options at this point to even recover? Do these movements have an option to restart? And what does it look like, especially now that obviously Trump is hardly helpful, if at all? Yeah. Um, so, what, where do you see where do you see Puerto Rican leftist movements or you know social movements going from now and the island itself?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and it's a really hard one to answer, but one that I do get a lot Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) studying Puerto Rico,
1: and particularly about status. Um, You know, a lot of people ask, what is the best thing, you know, statehood or independence or remaining a commonwealth? And, Mm -hmm. you know, beyond, you know, that is Puerto Rican's decision to make. I think it's really hard to answer, given this colonial history. Mm -hmm. Um, I think in a perfect world, you know, we could say, absolutely independence today, but without, you know, a really thoughtful um, sort of transition to independence with reparations from the United States that could leave a lot of Puerto Ricans, you know, in really tough material situations. Right. And so on the left, you know, there continue to be um, really important movements for independence, which are growing in the wake of the hurricane, as you mentioned. I mean, the, the mayor of San Juan, um, who's been getting a lot of Lately, Carmen Eulin Cruz is part of like the the really big and long um, pro Commonwealth party. But mm-hmm. in the wake of this, she's really starting to publicly question um, the political relationship with the United States and is calling more overtly for independence, which is kind of interesting. But a lot more people are. Um, but at the same time, you have leftist movements saying, "Well, maybe we should." should become a state, which has actually historically been a more conservative position on the island. Um, But let's do it from a left perspective and ally ourselves with progressive movements of color on the mainland. And maybe that's our best path forward. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's really tricky. Again, I mean, this is an issue that Puerto Ricans, you know, should have the sovereignty and the ability to decide for themselves. And they're very split um, as a community, understandably. it's, It's a really tough decision. But As a left movement, I think we need to, you know, really think about what is the best pathway forward for Puerto Ricans, both on the island and mainland.
0: So it's interesting that you brought up Carmen Yulín Cruz, because obviously she's been the center of a lot of, and by way of Trump, right, Um, who's been antagonizing her pretty much from the jump, uh, Mm -hmm. simply for disagreeing with him on his methods of, quote unquote, outrage to the island, which has been pretty paltry, um, yeah. and offensive at, at best. <laughs> um, <the> paper towels. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean like, oh my yeah. God, it was yeah. so bad. It's been bad. Yeah. Um, but what's fascinating is they don't really talk about her politics, right? I mean, she's, no. she's been, she's been, um, you know, the adversary on the island against Trump. And I think everything's centered around Trump, but it's really fascinating what you brought up about her, um, leaning towards independence and how the hurricane and her, her relationship with the mainland governance um, has really pushed her a little bit to an area where she perhaps hadn't thought of in the past. Um, have there been similar movements of other uh, members of her party or other politicians on the island, perhaps, who have pushed started now to push more for independence?
1: Yeah, and I think this is another really interesting parallel between you know the 1960s and early 70s as well. So a lot of people who supported the Commonwealth, or even in the party that created it, you know, start to become more disillusioned as, you know, the effects of this relationship really comes to a fore. It happened in the 70s when all the, the factories moved back to the mainland and people were left unemployed. And it's happening again. So I do think you see more people, you know, who are in the Partido Popular Democrático, which is kind of the pro-Commonwealth party, Uh um, yeah, becoming more independentista, which, you know, historically has actually been a pretty small movement on the island, um, you know, for many reasons, including repression. Uh, But, you know, I think there has also been a longstanding, we can be nationalist within the Commonwealth political setup, um And I think a lot more people are questioning that in the wake of this, and the small relatively small Puerto Rican independence party, I think you're seeing more people look towards them for some answers as well
0: and speaking again of um, the relationship between Puerto Rico and the mainland government, um, I was thinking a bit, again, about education, right? Mm-hmm. So I've seen some things floating around, some universities saying that they're going to extend scholarships specifically for Puerto Rican students who are affected by the hurricane um, or, you know, incoming college students to research or do work outside of Puerto Rico. Um, do you have any connection or understanding of, of what that looks like on the ground? Are there more active movements beyond just a few universities here and there in the U.S. who are reaching out? to university or even high school students so that they can continue um, their education even if, if they have to be away from physically away from Puerto Rico?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I wish I knew of a united movement as far as I know right now. Um, it, it is really happening on this sort of one-off basis so certain universities or more so certain school districts um, are saying let's come up with a plan so certain school districts um in new york or maybe around philadelphia or in florida definitely Mm -hmm. um they're saying yes let's come up with a plan for our new puerto rican students let's provide them with some extra support services Um, and that's happening in really exciting ways but kind of by the nature of the extremely localized um School system in the United States, right. it is sort of happening on this really decentralized level, um, and and same with universities, I'd say. But you know, you're also seeing um, Puerto Rican organizations advocating for you know more scholarships or um, kind of semesters at certain universities for Puerto Rican students who are displaced, which which is, I think, a really positive thing.
0: Right. It's definitely a, a you know, it's it's heartening I guess you could say um that people are moving in this direction I worry at the same time in the back of my head because I know that certain groups intentions are not in any way altruistic right um right. and I worry sometimes that this this hurricane will then further increase dependency or um this, this sort of colonial relationship with the U.S. always in control right um yep. And you had mentioned and many others have spoken about um, some of the energy or the plans to reintroduce energy and electricity in Puerto Rico, for example. Um, We've Mm -hmm. seen a lot of these weird like catch and go um, attempts to to reestablish lighting and power and internet, cell phone service and the like, beyond the very rather failed attempt uh, by Zinke, I believe,
1: um, Mm
0: -hmm. and, and Trump. Can you, do you know of any other, even if, if, perhaps extra governmental movements to help mm-hmm. restore resources in Puerto Rico?
1: So as you mentioned, there was a really unfortunate instance of mismanagement by the Puerto Rican Energy Company right after the hurricane. And that's its own whole shady story um, involving Zinke and a Montana-based company but there have also been groups attempting to create a more sustainable energy grid in the wake of the island's infrastructure being wiped out. Mm-hmm. So uh, anticipating that you know private companies and these shock doctrinists were going to want to come in and privatize the electrical system, uh, we're seeing grassroots groups like Resilient Puerto Rico offering alternative energy solutions based on solar power, for example. Um, and the hope is that these efforts aren't just temporary, but... It, you know, they'll be an enduring part of the rebuilding efforts. And all of these efforts have really been part of a broader movement for not simply a recovery after the hurricane, but a just recovery, mm-hmm. which would mean um, something a lot broader. And it means creating an environmentally sustainable, more sovereign, more democratic political system. It would mean eliminating the Jones Act, which is this colonial maritime law that jacks up prices of any imports and keeps the island in poverty and in debt. Um, and it would mean advocating for a debt cancellation uh, because, as we were discussing, Puerto Rico as a colony, you know, it can't just declare bankruptcy like a Detroit or a Washington, D.C. as a city. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it advocates for a citizen audit of the debt instead of the current Fiscal Control Board, or Junta Fiscal, which was this unappointed, undemocratic, uh, kind of oversight board that was appointed in 2016 to manage financial decisions on the island. It only has, uh, two or three Puerto Ricans on that board, and this has clear imperial overtones. So we're seeing movements to advocate, uh, for more participatory democracy, and this is, you know, translating to other resources as well, obviously. So wait,
0: wait. I'm sorry. Let me just interrupt mm-hmm. you really fast. Um, is yeah. this is this board that you're talking about actually part of PROMESA? Was this the board that was established by way of that bill?
1: Exactly. Okay. So in 2016, yeah, PROMESA establishes the, the Junta Fiscal, um, and they do have power right now on the island to make financial decisions. Okay.
0: Thank you. Keep going about that. I'm sorry. I just wanted to make sure that we're talking about or thinking about the same legislation, right? So that's great to know.
1: Exactly. And yeah, and this has been happening because um, Promesa and the Junta Fiscal is encouraging austerity in other realms. It's really getting people thinking about other resources in addition to energy, um, like education, but also food and um, sustainable agriculture and thinking about how to create food sovereignty. Hmm. And that takes the form of right now in the wake of the hurricane, there's a lot of um, mutual kitchens and mutual uh, kind of communal kitchens being set up. There's also efforts to uh, collect seeds and replant and start setting up a lot of community uh, agricultural systems uh, to sort of. Weaken in the dependency on imports from mainland food sources in the wake of this. Um, so a lot of those are really, really exciting ways to sort of combat what could be just coming in and implementing a lot of privatizing shock doctrine policies in the wake of this hurricane.
0: Um, so switching gears a bit, I heard uh, from a little birdie that you're working on a book. <laughs> Is that correct? Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes, yes. So it is a book that's uh, kind of unrelated, but kind of not actually about the recent history of teacher education in the United States. Mm -hmm. So our question is kind of, you know, if you wanted to become a teacher in 1980, you had to go to a school of education Uh, within, you know, 30 years, there's all these varieties of pathways to certification and entry into the classroom. So, you know, Teach for America is the most probably a visible and well-known example of that, but there's Mm -hmm. just been a proliferation of alternative certification and and hybrid programs. So we're taking a historical approach to that question, Um, yeah, and looking at that. And
0: um, this alternative approach, right, does this involve expanding opportunities perhaps for communities of color or lower income people who perhaps don't have the means to be credentialed in a traditional way?
1: Yeah, so that's one of these really interesting questions we get at in the book. So, you know, if you're coming from a left perspective, often you see these alternative certifications, and, you know, rightly so, as part of the neoliberal reform agenda of bringing a lot of, you know, maybe wealthy, white, upper class, um, young students into classrooms and displacing uh, teachers of color. Mm-hmm. Um, But at the same time, what we get into, it's really important to recognize the critiques that were coming from communities of color in the 60s and 70s, saying that how we certify teachers now is also creating, you know, a largely, um, you know, white upper middle class teaching force for a school system that's now, you know, majority students of color. Mm -hmm. And so you know, we kind of look at intersections between these more radical left um, critiques of education schools, as well as the more li- neoliberal, Milton Friedman-esque um, kind of reform critiques as well, and how they, you know, sometimes coincided to create alternative certification programs, but, you know, dismissing some of the the critiques and ideas of radical leftists from the 60s. Right. Um, but at the same time, I think it's interesting, you know, if you look at the numbers, Um, A lot of alternative certification programs are bringing a lot more teachers of color into school districts than education schools are. Mm. So we're really encouraging education schools, um, sort of the establishment, quote unquote, which we see actually is more of like a a progressive bastion, right? Uh, You know, in what ways has that establishment failed as well? to bring teachers of color, um, into communities and train them well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think what we kind of end up advocating for is, you know, how can we, you know, adequately train educators and prepare them with a professional education that, you know, both prepares them and doesn't, you know, cripple unions, right. uh, but also really, you know, increase diversity within our, our country schools.
0: Right. I mean, it, that's, that introduces a lot of really fascinating questions, particularly as sort of If we think about these blind spots that we have in more progressive circles, right, Um, Mm -hmm. in particular with regard to access to learning Mm -hmm. to become an educator, right, access to higher education, access to a lot of things. And I think it it sort of pokes holes in some of the discussions, or at least very bifurcated discussions that we've seen with regard to charter schools and school choice and the like. Um, There's always an underside to this that complicates our, our discussions, and I think it's worth really digging in a little bit deeper and understanding all sides of it. Yeah, um, Do you all talk about charter schools at all in your work?
1: We do a little bit in the sense that charter schools are one of the main employers of or alternatively certified teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it does sort of intersect again where you see kind of in the early years of charter schools, a lot of communities of color that were really... You know, highly critical of the education establishment um, through education schools and and the public education system, seeing them as sort of hopeful as places of self-determination, actually, in a lot Mm -hmm. of independent schools, um, you know, start in the 60s and 70s based on these ideas. And then you see them sort of co-opted by, you know, the ed reform establishment, which is not community based at all. Right. Well, I mm-hmm. look
0: forward to reading it when it comes out. Do you all, you all have a title yet?
1: Yes. Yeah, so it's Teaching Teachers, Changing Paths and Enduring Debates. And I'm actually co-authoring that with Professor James Frazier at NYU, um, who's worked a lot on the history of teacher education. And it's set to be published in the fall of 2018. So next year with the Johns Hopkins University Press.
0: Awesome. Well, I look forward to reading it and promoting it. <clears throat> <Me too. laughs> um So just wrapping up a bit, um... Do you have any last words for us, things that we should think about with regard to Puerto Rico, with regard to education, with regard to these movements? Any last thoughts that you'd like to impart upon uh, the listeners?
1: Yeah, well, I would say well, there's a lot to say, but if I'm <laughs> um, I will encourage people working for educational justice today to really, you know, think about what your podcast is aiming to do and think about movements on the left from communities of color throughout history um, and even recently, and what arguments they've been making all along. So I think you have a lot of people who are really against this ed reform movement today. And if we look to movements that have been happening in Latin America for the past few decades um, against neoliberal education policies, which have been implemented there you know, for decades, you know, there are a lot of really interesting lessons, a lot of really interesting opportunities for solidarity. With movements across the hemisphere and across the world really um, and really let those voices lead
0: yeah well I always I <laughs> yeah. always say like I have a little phrase where I always say don't sleep on the south but I'm normally thinking about the south of the United States right because there's a lot yeah. of radicalism happening in the south that people up north and beyond um, sort of ignore right it's but better. I think in in, in this <laughs> case when I say don't sleep on the south we're, we've got to think about South America the Caribbean, uh, the mm-hmm. global South, right? Uh, and I think that really that really does offer they offer a lot for us to learn from as well. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Wendy. Thanks well, for having well,
0: me. Amados hermanos, compañeros y compañeras, ustedes saben y ustedes reconocen que son puertorriqueños, verdad? ¿Verdad? Yes. Ahora vamos a señalar esta gente ahora que nosotros nunca los olvidamos que somos boricuas. And that was episode three of the left pocket project podcast to learn more about Lauren's research. You can follow her on Twitter at Lauren lefty and that's L A U R E N L E F T Y. And of course, to see more about what's going on at the left pocket project, you can follow me at left POC and that's L E F T P O C. And as always, you can follow us on Facebook at Left POC or show your support on Patreon, and that's at slash Left POC. Thanks so much for listening. Have a good one. Música criolla, bonita. Ah, ahora tengo ganas de comer un plato, un buen plato de arroz y avichuela. Ay, bonito. Me encanta la música puertorriqueña me encanta ahora mismo estoy pensando en esa isla tan bonita las palmas de coco el chunque, ay ay, y el mar y la mujer, ay Dios tan bonita que son esas escrituras que el señor bendiga eso ay, le doy gracias señor le doy gracias que soy puertorriqueño ay